What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving, hopefully enjoyed some time off, some company with friends and family, and uh, enjoyed some well-deserved food. Today's episode is very informative as I speak with my buddy Pete from ASM Foundation regarding some physical approaches to handling PTSD. Uh, before jumping into that conversation, uh, please take a quick second to leave a rating and review for the show. It means the world to me and uh, does help spread the message of the show. Uh, along the same lines, uh, hit up the shop for some sweet merch. Uh, VanguardStories.com, whether that's shirts, coffee cups, uh, there are several designs to choose from. Again, VanguardStories.com. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, the holidays are here, coming up quick, uh, however you want to look at it. And if you can't quite decide or figure out what to get uh, your fellow coffee addict, like myself, uh, check out a Black Rifle Coffee subscription uh, and use code VANGUARD for 20% off. That's code VANGUARD for 20% off a Black Rifle Coffee subscription. Uh, otherwise, let's roll an awesome episode. <laughs> What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, my name is Austin Jardine, and I'm just a dude outside of Boise, Idaho. Uh, I like to sit down, talk to folks, get their get their stories, learn a little bit more about who they are, how they got to where they're at, some of the things that they faced, and uh, maybe tap into tools, lessons learned, life experiences to share with you guys, hopefully give you some tools of your own to uh, tackle your own life with. With that being said, I've got Mr. Pete on the phone with me. We connected earlier this week through a mutual friend, kind of just talked a little bit to see if you'd be interested in hopping on. And you've got a lot of life experience and things that you've learned that I think this, the folks of this podcast would benefit from. So Pete, if you don't mind just introducing yourself a little bit, we'll just, we'll start talking. Sure. My name is Pete Depry. I am the co-founder of ASM Foundation. Uh, we sponsor first responders and veterans to receive alternative therapies for PTSD, or what we're calling PTSD. Um, that can include hormone therapy, um, MERT, which is electromagnetic stimulation to focus parts of the brain that have been damaged, um, and uh, a, a number of other um, therapies that are primarily focused on reducing neural inflammation, uh, encouraging neuroplasticity, so cellular regeneration within the brain, and then re-regulating the endocrine system. Um, that's kind of a broad scope of what we're focused on. Each individual obviously um, has different needs. Um, some are not going to be as extreme when it comes to the level of head trauma that they've suffered. And when we focus on head trauma, it has to kind of be looked at in two categories. There's blunt trauma, which would be something that we see in, in football, falling alpha stuff, uh, pop, you know, contact sports, the, the more traditional thought of. And then there is blast trauma, which is something that we're finding a lot in both the military and first responder communities. Um, so for those that don't know, when somebody fires a, a rifle or a handgun, the boom that you hear is not actually the gunpowder going off, it's the sonic blast from the projectile breaking the sound barrier. And that blast, especially when done with short barreled rifles in tight confines where the blast wave itself doesn't have anywhere to escape, 
we're, we're taking those blasts to the noggin and it can penetrate bone, but it's absorbed by soft tissue, namely our, our brain. So um, those are, are considered micro concussions. And the difference between a macro concussion and a micro concussion, a macro concussion would present as loss of consciousness, um, open head fracture, um, stuff that's, that's very serious, but people generally take preventative measures after those have presented. Whereas with these micro concussions, whether you're playing football and seeing a flash of light or smelling something funny, dizzy, nauseous afterwards, um, we generally continue to accumulate those micro concussions uh, for prolonged periods of time because there hasn't been, um, we haven't recognized the long-term repercussions of those micro concussions uh, until now. So utilizing high dosage vitamins, supplements, uh, some hormones like testosterone replacement, estrogen blockers in my case, um, human growth hormone, um, th those are utilized as well, dependent on the needs of the client specifically. Okay. Okay. So that's what you're working on now. Do you mind talking about how this came to be a part of your life? And then also, you know, I think when we get down that rabbit hole a little bit more talking about the different types of therapy and, you know, how you got into them and what they look like. Absolutely. I spent uh, right around 12 years working as a first responder. I did everything from search and rescue to patrol deputy, um, worked in SWAT, um, firearms instructor. So a lot of time on the range in those tight confines, like we're talking about, uh, I played contact sports into my twenties. Um, and, you know, growing up in the 1900s, like, like I did, we just, we'd smacked our noggins around a lot. I was a rambunctious kid in the Midwest. Um, and we fell off of stuff a lot, or I did. Um, so again, not recognizing the repercussions of the, what, what comes with that, that type of head trauma long-term, um, it all added up. And for me presented as a ton of short-term memory loss, I was getting more irritable than I was used to. Uh, I went from sleeping probably two to four hours throughout my career to not being able to sleep more than 20 minutes at a time. So I'd actually been sober from alcohol for almost 13 years and just reached a point where I, I legitimately could not sleep. Uh, so I started utilizing alcohol again to try to remedy that. And that had all the repercussions that, that we know uh, generally come with it. So I went from being a very high functioning law enforcement officer to, um, you know, at the, at the worst, when I was the, dealing with the worst of this affliction, I was away from the sheriff's office. Um, my marriage had dissolved. I was having trouble, trouble formulating sentences. I would come to driving down the road and have no idea how I got started driving, where I was going, what I was doing, how long I'd been driving. Um, it's just, it's a vicious cycle. It was coming in two to three week waves of these heavy depressions. Um, alcohol was still readily in the mix and, and was, you know, messing stuff up even further. Um, once I started the therapy, it was legitimately 10 days in that I woke up one morning, I had a thought, I processed the thought, I came to a conclusion and I bolted up in bed and thought, holy shit, I'm, I'm fixed. 
And that was the first step, obviously. But when, when you've lived with this, at that point, I was almost two years of dealing with this bullshit. And it, it felt like I was all of a sudden better. There was yeah. still a long way to go, but all of a sudden I didn't have to carry a notebook with me everywhere or call somebody and ask them, have I told you this already? Or when did we talk last? Um, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, and, and when you, when you start trying to heal from these afflictions, it's really difficult when you can't remember if you've taken your, your medicine or something, whatever the, the protocol is that you're on. I couldn't remember if I had taken it half the time. So yeah. It's a long road and unfortunately, well, I should, I should say this with a caveat, the road to legitimate healing is you're looking at months, if not years to get through all of this shit. Um, there are tools that we will utilize with, within ASM. If somebody comes to us and they say, look guys, I'm, I'm at a breaking point. I don't think I'm gonna get to tomorrow if I don't get immediate help. We can utilize stuff like the stellate ganglion block. Uh, we can get them into ketamine therapy, which is not an overnight uh, remedy, but it, it both of those are bridges to get somebody to the point that that um, you know we hope will be a long-term healing effect. Sure. Okay. So before we get into uh, I guess the solutioning of it, you were talking about some of the different symptoms and stuff that you were kind of experiencing, right? So. What were, what were maybe the, the key factors that pointed you towards, hey, I do need to get help and like recognizing that there was something wrong? Because I think, you know, a lot of people live in the moment and don't recognize the greater issue, right? So how did you get to the point of being like, fuck, I need to go get something done? Sure. Great question. Um, and sorry, I tend to go into a, a quick, fast diatribe with a lot of this stuff. You're fine, dude. I love it. We're good. So... I can answer that kind of in two parts. The first would be looking at it in retrospect. Um, I remember being on a dead guy one time, which was pretty routine. And it was nighttime, uh, helped the coroner collect the body. They left, we still had our overheads on, uh, overhead lights. And I'm talking to another deputy. And as we're carrying on this conversation, I'm looking at his face and his face looked like it, it appeared the way that it would look if he was dead. And the did? No, no, no. This other deputy. That oh, the other deputy. Okay, gotcha. Um, and, you know, he's talking to me, but there's just this gray, dull look to his face. And at the time, I thought, it's got to just be the lights, and maybe this is what happens with just seeing dead guys so often. Um, and then it started happening when I would be carrying on conversation in the morning with my then wife and, and stepson, um, if I was talking to anybody, it would just like if you and I were carrying on this conversation when I was dealing with this stuff, at some point your face would appear as it would look if you were dead to me. Okay. Um, that would be a, one of the first signs that I remembered. Uh, I started having um, issues with my vision, I, very light sensitive at night, just the reflection off of a street sign would be enough for me to have to look away. If I was on a traffic stop at night and I was gathering the information at the, the vehicle who I'd stopped and I turned around to walk back to my vehicle, I would get dizzy and, and have trouble focusing, which is a pretty big liability um, safety-wise. So then the sleep issue started, the irritability increases. And when you think about the combination of you're slowly deteriorating cognitively and then you add on even more lack of sleep when you're used to going off 
two, four, six hours at the most to now 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time. Um, it's understandable that these, it would all start to stack up on itself. Yeah. Um, the point that I finally pulled myself off of the SWAT team, uh, we were, we were going on an op. Um, I had been on a team that was going to the rear of the structure that we were, we were doing a warrant, uh, search on it. And my responsibility was to throw a flashbang when I heard the front door be breached and then we were supposed to cover off on it. When I heard the front door get breached, I threw the flashbang, knelt down, and in the midst of this op going down, I realized I'm not thinking anything about any of my responsibilities or the guy to my right or left. I'm a fucking liability right now. Mm -hmm. and I, I should have, if I'm if I have any sense of integrity and responsibility to this team, I have to remove myself. So that was I had a talk with the the head of the team, explained that to him, and then shortly thereafter removed myself from from the road as well. At that time, and I think one of the uh, advantages to working and, and living your life in this community, whether it's the first responder or the military community, is most of our training revolves around understanding the mechanics of a problem. And the advantages of that are when you're in the midst of trying to solve the problem, if something goes wrong, you want to be able to fix it really quickly. So we need to understand intricately every element of, of any problem that, that we're going to be faced with. So when I got this diagnosis, which let's be clear, it's a checklist that a doctor is going to read off and ask you questions. And if you check enough of the boxes or he checks those for you, they're going to diagnose you with what we call PTSD. Right. The remedy for that at, for me was Lexapro, which is an antidepressant and um, Xanax, which is a barbiturate. Um, Xanax is essentially the same as drinking. Uh, and Lexapro, for me, had worse consequences than it did advantages. Sure. Um, I'll give the caveat, I was still drinking throughout all of this because I still didn't understand what was going on and there was just chaos in my head. Um, so eventually I got to the point where I started asking these questions to myself, what's going on? I, I knew that barbiturates and antidepressants are not going to heal whatever issue is at hand. So I wanted to understand the mechanics, what's, what error is going on and how do I fix that? And that's where I came to the work of Dr. Mark Gordon, who we're, we're utilizing for the hormone therapy. And then further down the road found stuff like MERT. Uh, I'm supposed to talk with another doctor next week who has developed a, or he's utilizing, I don't know if he directly developed it, a stem cell IV drip that can penetrate the blood brain barrier and help to uh, help with cellular regeneration and decrease neuroinflammation. Right. Okay. So I know a lot of folks, definitely myself included, look at prescription medications and stuff like that as uh, a quick fix. Right. And, and how did you get to the point of exactly what you said, right. And looking at it and saying, Hey, I know this isn't going to heal me. Right. It, it's a bandaid if at, you know, if at best. Right. What, what got you to the point of trying to find the next best thing that would really lend to actual healing? I, that, it felt like a prison sentence to me. Um, being told I'm going to be reliant on antidepressants and talk therapy for the remainder of my life, which no matter who I asked at the time um, that, that I had direct access to was saying, no, that, yeah, that's, that's the solution. 
and you want to start weaning yourself off the barbiturates so you can get back to work. Um, I knew that wasn't going to heal the problem at hand. And I could feel myself cognitively getting worse and worse by the week and by the month. Um, so I, I always kind of looked at, and look, I'm, I'm not shitting on antidepressants. If I think they should be utilized as a bridge. I don't think they should be dependent on long-term because essentially if, if on a layman's term view of it, an antidepressant is essentially a cortisone shot for your brain. And if we make the comparison between the brain and a, a joint that we're utilizing a cortisone shot for, if you keep pumping the knee full of cortisone, that the joint eventually is going to deteriorate to the point that it has to be replaced. Mm -hmm. And we can't do the same thing with the brain. We can't just pop a new brain in and, and call it good and hope that we don't get to a point where we need more cortisone for it. Sure. The brain will, similar to the way that the liver will, if given the opportunity, regenerate cellularly and, and uh, be healthy again. So we have to avoid, and it's not just blast trauma, as I said before, the elements that really affect the endocrine system and ultimately cause a lot of this neural inflammation are prolonged stress, sleep imbalances like shift work and blast trauma. So any one of those alone can cause endocrine system dysfunction and neural inflammation. All three of them together, obviously like a powder keg. But the only way that we're ever going to get ahead of this is to start implementing a lot of these uh, supplements and vitamins as guys are still active, as they're coming up through the ranks and starting to feel affected by it. And some people won't ever be affected by any of this at all. It's, whether it's genetic or biological, whatever it is, some people just aren't as affected or they're able to compartmentalize it, whatever the case might be. But those that are, and, and we're seeing that there's clearly a, an issue at hand through the levels of addiction that we're seeing, the divorce rates, the suicide rates. Um, and these agencies, whether it's state or federal, are pumping a bunch of money into us to get us trained up to be fully operational. They're losing those investments every time one of us has to rotate out, be it for PTSD or suicide or just being overwhelmed at uh, the way that they're feeling and, and not wanting to do the job anymore. So I think there's a vested interest. And I think long term, and certainly one of our goals is to get state and federal agencies to start implementing some of these protocols ahead of the game so that uh, we're not losing guys to these afflictions left and right. And they're not losing their investments. In okay. Okay. So let's talk about that. And then, so let's talk about the, the foundation of ASM and I guess the pillars that you guys are standing for and trying to work on. Where did, how did it come about and what, what are you guys working towards now? Sure. So a buddy of mine that I went to high school with, he attended the Citadel Military Academy and then went into the Navy and uh, served in a number of different roles there before moving into the private sector. And now he's a, a business consultant. Um, he and I, he, he dealt with similar issues um, and probably it was right as I was starting my treatment, uh, we, we happened to connect and uh, just through chatting and brainstorming decided, you know, this is, this is something that needs to be 
available to everybody in the first responder and military communities. Obviously, none of us are getting rich from fulfilling any of these roles. So insurance still doesn't cover this type of treatment. So we decided to start trying to raise money through donations to be able to pay for this type of treatment um, for those military and, and first responder members that, that are in need. Um, as you know, initially we were just focused on the hormone therapy. The more we started digging, we started finding other opportunities that were there. Um, we've developed relationships with addiction treatment facilities that can take guys in and get them rolling both with uh, addiction therapy and with uh, be it hormone therapy or MERT at the same time. So when they're coming out of addiction therapy, they, they have legitimate tools and, and legitimate healing to start that uh, sober life. Okay. That's awesome. So what are, I don't, I'm not familiar with either MERT or hormone therapy. Do you mind kind of elaborating on, on what both of those are and how they help? Sure. Um, so as I said, the prolonged stress, sleep imbalances and, and head trauma all contribute to endocrine system dysfunction. Uh, and, and your endocrine system is ultimately what regulates your hormones. Um, so a result of imbalanced hormones is neuroinflammation and the, the symptoms present in a multitude of different ways, but they mirror what we've been calling PTSD. A lot of guys have issues and girls have issues with the uh, diagnosis of PTSD because by definition, it's saying you're traumatized by traumatic events that you've witnessed or experienced. And most of us have the same sentiment, which is, I felt more comfortable at work than I did at home. My brain just wasn't working. Um, Dr. Gordon, who we work with, uses a great analogy where he says, your hormone system is not like the, the tires on a vehicle where one can go flat and the other three will support it. If one level goes down, all the others will dip as well. So he has to regulate all those levels up to get them even again. And his protocol is designed not to be utilized long-term and, and, or, or forever. It's designed to get your system, your endocrine system functioning optimally so that you won't be dependent on any of these supplements. Obviously, there's some supplements that, that vitamin D3, uh, B12, stuff like that, that people should probably be ingesting on a regular basis because we're not getting enough out of the natural environment. Um, but once that neural inflammation is reduced to an to a ideal level and the endocrine system is functioning optimally, you're off the protocol, you're off and running to, to living a happier life. But a lot of the symptoms that we see in PTSD present from endocrine system dysfunction, like lack or inability to sleep well, uh, the irritability, short-term memory loss, all these uh, the similar symptoms that we see in PTSD are replicated in this, this type of dysfunction. Okay. Okay. So it seems like PTSD in some way, shape or form, you know, is, I don't know, I don't know if I want to use the word prevailing, but I feel like it's a, it's a term I hear frequently, right? Yeah. How do you help identify folks that might benefit from, you know, hormone therapy or MERT or different regimens? How do you help bring people on board to direct them towards a certain type of recovery? Sure. So the first thing that we want to do, if somebody comes to us looking for help, 
is get an idea of what their diet looks like. Um, what, where are they with their substance abuse? Because generally that, that, that's there and it's an underlying issue that has to be dealt with. Um, the approach that we're taking is ultimately that there's an injury to the central nervous system. Every time somebody's ingesting alcohol, they are affecting their central nervous system to a detriment. So if you are trying to heal an injury to the central nervous system, to the brain specifically, and you're ingesting alcohol, it's like kicking a horse and pulling back on the reins at the same time. You're not gonna get anywhere. So we have to address that first. We gotta look at the diet. There's a lot of food that are pretty prevalent in today's society that contribute to further inflammation. So until we can get that stuff out, um, we're not gonna be able to deal with the, the issue at hand. Uh, so diet, exercise, what's their sleep patterns like? What are the prevailing symptoms that they're struggling with that we can start treating? If somebody is presenting with overwhelming head trauma symptoms, then we know that uh, they're likely going to need more treatment than somebody who's just saying, you know, I just don't feel like I used to. I'm, I'm more lethargic. I'm not recovering as fast as I used to. Um, I have some sleepless nights. Uh, so each individual has to be assessed on an individual basis. Uh, and then the assessment that Mark, Dr. Gordon does is intricate. It, it's, it's something that is so intricate that we oftentimes have to have uh, an assistant or, or somebody to assist a, a, a potential client with filling it out because I, it took me three days to fill out his packet. I was really sick at the time um, because it, it's cognitively, you're just not, not there. So sure. trying to sort through a lot of that stuff um, is something that we've had to mitigate by outside help. Okay. Um, does that answer what you were? It does. Yep. Yep. That does help. Um, I heard, I heard really there's some underlying things to take into consideration, right? Diet, exercise, substance abuse, things like this that really do help almost diagnose, but really do help direct to what degree assistance is needed. Absolutely. So then the, the what we will generally do is start somebody on a 90 day protocol of high dosage vitamins, supplements, and after that 90 day, it's totally dependent on what they're presenting with in, in the immediacy of them coming to us. If it's somebody who's saying, look, man, I am in the shit. Um, I don't know if I'm going to make it to next week. We're going to get them immediate help and, and throw everything we can at them. Uh, if it's somebody who's just uncomfortable, we're going to get them on these high dosage vitamin supplements do that for 90 days, reassess at that point. If we need to do a full blood panel, we'll do it at that point and, and assess accordingly. Um, and, and some people may need hormone therapy, MERT, addiction, through, you know, they may need the whole kitchen sink. Um, some people may just need high dose vitamins and, and supplements. So as I said, it's an individual case by case basis and we're treating it accordingly. Yeah. Okay. How often, and I'm trying to think of how best to ask this, because I know that oftentimes people have a hard time asking for help. Right. And it sounds like you, you went through it and had to kind of figure out like, Hey, I am now a liability to my team. This is really what pushed me into it. You know, I'm not, I'm not what I want to be or how I need to, or who I need to be. What advice or, or tools do you have to help people kind of identify 
that they do need help, right? And being willing and open to asking for it. It's a conversation that I'm having pretty regularly with guys who, and, and there's still a lot of stigmas around this. Um, I can go back to a lot of the people that I used to work with and it's nothing but hugs and, and smacks on the butts and hey, how are you? It's like the good old days. But the second I bring up, how are you feeling? Are you suffering from any of this stuff? It's a pretty fast shutdown. It's, there's still that stigma. If I talk about it, I could be vulnerable to getting infected by it. It's right. like a, a viral worry. Um, so, and, and understandably, I didn't want to talk about this shit until I had to. Um, the best way that I'm getting through to people is by presenting it as this is an injury, not an illness. And an injury can be treated. An illness is more than likely we're going to be relegated to pharmaceuticals long term. Yep. Um, so then I'll start with just general conversation. Well, would it, how is it when you're getting home from work and, and they'll say stuff like, Oh, you know, it's, it's normal. Like I use the side door to the garage and, and usually have three, four beers. And then once I'm cooled down, I can go in and say hi to the kids and kiss the wife. And, um, but, but, you know, if I didn't do that, I'd choke the shit out of the kids. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's, that's not normal, brother. It, it's uh, it's we got to find a way to get back to the normal where you're able to walk in the front door, give everybody a hug and sit down and, and enjoy your dinner. And I was a hundred percent that way. I would come home, walk in, dump all my gear, throw on some workout clothes and go in the garage and spend two hours in the garage working out and hope that the, the wife and kid were asleep by the time I got done. Um, because you just, don't want to deal with any more shit at the end of a 12, 14, 15 hour shift where you're spending your day solving other people's problems. Um, that gets overwhelming. The, the prolonged stress is a legitimate thing. The shift work going from night shift to day shift, to night shift to day shift. Sometimes you're, I was on a, a year of nights and throughout that year of nights, I would have to pull off and jump into day trainings where Either I got no sleep or maybe got 40 minutes of sleep. Um, and this isn't training like going and sitting in a classroom. This is training like going out and running carbines and handguns and, you know, doing what should be fun stuff, but you're miserable because you haven't slept in 36 hours. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a weird cycle. Um, but that's where we want to try to start getting ahead of this stuff. We can't avoid prolonged stress. In, in the military or first responder community. It's gonna be there. And when I'm talking about first responders, that's a broad camp. I'm talking about nurses, and doctors, and firemen, EMTs, paramedics, cops, dispatchers. Um, a lot of people wear these caps and are exposed to this issue. Um, we're never gonna avoid prolonged stress. We're never gonna avoid sleep imbalances. We're never gonna avoid, for a lot of us, a lot of this blast trauma and head trauma. Um, so how do we mitigate the repercussions of that stuff? And in my mind, it's as simple as education, you know, get, get everybody to understand what's causing a lot of it and then offer these solutions, which none of them go against policy or procedure for any agency, state or federal that I'm aware of. And we're not, even if I'm talking about utilizing testosterone replacement therapy, I'm not talking about utilizing it in dosages that are gonna get you big, nice bar muscles. I'm talking about getting people up to normal, optimal levels that they should be at. 
they aren't there because of a lot of these effects of, of uh, the job. Um, and it's a difficult topic to approach and particularly with the law enforcement community because the admin, on the admin level, they're worried about acknowledging that these are legitimate repercussions of the job. If yeah. they acknowledge that, then they can be held liable for long-term um, disability. Our suggestion is you're not going to be liable for long-term disability if you're offering these solutions to active duty personnel that can take advantage of it and get ahead of the problem. Not just that, but they'll retain the investment that they've made in. Okay. Okay. So you, you talked about a couple of different things, you know, and I'm thinking about it. So convincing people to ask for help is one thing, right? And the education piece, I think is a, another big piece of it, right? That, you know, people like me, you know, I like to sit down before I make a decision and jump on, jump ship on anything, right? Like I've got to research everything under the sun about it. Is there anything through like your study, research, practice and everything as far as resources go that you think are beneficial for people to go lean on in order to make a decision and get help? Resources as far as uh, websites, books, sure. articles, anything like that? Yeah, and it depends on, I would start with uh, watching films like Quiet Explosion. Uh, that was a film done within the last couple of years that profiles a lot of the work that uh, Dr. Gordon is doing. It profiles uh, Andrew Marr, who's a, a close friend of ours in, in their foundation, Warrior Angels Foundation. Um, and they're doing the exact same work that we are. They're, they're only focused on veterans. Andrew was in the, the he was a Green Beret and Special Forces. Um, so they're focused on uh, the veteran community. We're focused on veterans and first responders. So trying to round out uh, covering everybody in it. Um, but they've been great resources for us. Um, tons of podcasts are out there, obviously. Um, both, of the, both Andrew and uh, Mark Gordon have been on Joe Rogan's podcast a number of times, which is a great one. But the topic is really starting to surface everywhere you look. Um, Andy Stump with Cleared Hot is, is talking about these issues a lot. Uh, Jocko obviously has, has covered this stuff. Um, and if, if, if Jocko's talking about it, for God's sake, you know, it, it's something to be recognized. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I, I don't think that agencies as a whole Nobody wants to, it's a silly stigma that there's any weakness behind this. And I think the only reason that that stigma exists is because we haven't understood it for so long. Um, if, if I have any, if I'm thankful to have experienced any of this, it's that I did it at this time where we're coming, there's a legitimate understanding of what's going wrong mechanically within us and there are legitimate means for healing those problems. Right. Um, if you're looking at, if I were to look at myself now and stand next to myself when I was still operating um, and doing that off of two to four hours of sleep versus me now, and I could kid up and I haven't lost any of the knowledge or the abilities that I had now, I am going to be better now than I was then because I'm getting eight, nine hours of sleep every night that's legitimate healthy rest my head's in a better place cognitively um 
it's only going to make us better to start looking at this stuff realistically and addressing it and dealing with it in a functional manner that's going to get us past it. Um, so education-wise, following the follow follow the the information trail. Look at it mechanically. Um, what are how how are your symptoms presented? It's not normal to go off of two to four hours of sleep a night. It's not. That's that's there's something going on with you. It's not normal to be irritable and hypervigilant all the time. There's something going wrong with you. Um, luckily, all this stuff is fixable, but it wasn't fixable for our grandfathers and for our fathers' generations, and even for most of us until I mean, Mark just started doing this stuff 22 years ago. Uh, I just learned about stuff like MERT uh, within the last four or five months. Um, and I'm, I'm obviously not the, the beacon of knowledge when it comes to all this stuff, but I'm working in this field and, and searching out every possible option that there is. Um, so it's, it's being willing to talk about it, being willing to explore it, um, and not just shutting it down the second it comes up because you're worried about being infected. Yeah. What, what, as a guy that's gone through it and kind of preaching the benefits of it, what would be the things that you would tell other guys and gals not to continue stigmatizing it, help break the stigma and then realize that it's not some sort of infectious, crazy bullshit to avoid. Uh, I, it's a hard one, man, because it's not a topic that uh, it's, I'll say this, almost every shift that I ever worked at some point, I would have a conversation with anybody else that I was working with uh, about how much sleep did you get last night? And it was almost uh, like a, a bit of a pissing contest. Whoever had the least amount of sleep, everybody wanted to watch how they were going to perform. Not like they were a liability, but almost like a, a trophy. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, I think my longest shift that I ever worked was 38 hours. And at some point you're doing it purely out of pride. Like I wanna see how far I can push this. I wanna see how long I can go. You're a fucking liability. And until people start acknowledging that and in being willing to say, you know, the tough guy thing is, a facade we can all go do it if we try and no, it's you're not winning a trophy by staying up for that amount of time um we need to be celebrating who's doing it in the most healthy manner not who who can suck it up and deal with it there's always going to be times to suck it up that we have to suck it up and do it um whether that's going through some qualification course or just dealing with the trials and tribulations of working the road um, so it's great to know your limitations, but it, it's also, it's just not normal. It's not healthy, um, to be utilizing alcohol on a nightly basis, not healthy, not feasible long-term. Um, I, it's, it's a hard conversation to have within the confines of that community. I, yeah. I admit that wholeheartedly. Yeah. But I think it's just going to take people. And, and I'm, I'm seeing it 100% with guys I'm talking to. Uh, Canada is setting, believe it or not, Canada is setting a wildly good precedent for dealing with these issues. And really? um, 
a lot of bigger agencies, uh, Chicago, a uh, handful of agencies in Florida that I'm familiar with. Um, Southern California is doing a good job at, at dealing with a lot of it. And I think it's a result of seeing the repercussions. Um, you know, this year alone, we, we're, we're way ahead of the normal scale for, for suicides within the law enforcement community, way ahead. Um, obviously, some of that could be uh, related to COVID, uh, but we can look at COVID deaths amongst law enforcement and those are just astronomical. Yeah. There's a direct correlation between health and those, those deaths, I believe. Um, unfortunately, nationally, we do not have health standards for cops. I think that is a blatant dereliction of duty. I mean, if your job is to keep somebody safe and you can't run somebody else down, how can you do your job effectively? Fair. Um, you know, I will, I, I will be the first to call it. I thought talking about something like the gut microbiome is about as woo-woo as you can <laughs> yeah. until I was really sick and realized all this anxiety, all this confusion um, starts in my gut. And I started thinking, where do I feel happiness? Where would I feel excitement before and off? Where would I feel uh, sadness, depression? All our emotions are kind of centrally located generally in our gut. There's an absolute connection between the gut and brain. Um, and there are really easy steps that we can take to mitigate um, how out of, uh, out of whack our, our gut microbiome is. I think when you say gut microbiome, people on they, they just, they, they attribute it to something non-science. It's yeah. absolutely scientific. Um, there are, I think, billions of different bacteria living in your gut that regulate how you feel. Um, I do, I do a, a probiotic pill every day. I drink the kefir yogurt uh, to wash my supplements and, and vitamins down. And then I try to eat some kind of fermented cabbage or, or something like sauerkraut a couple times a week. And my, it's, I don't have to think about it anymore. I'm not regulated emotionally by, by my gut like I was before. Um, the problem with doing, or I don't, I don't wanna say the problem, the issue that I had initially with focusing on that was when you're in that storm, and I'm talking about when you've gotten really, really sick from all this, focusing on your gut microbiome or meditation or breath work all goes out the window because you can't get out of that really dark, ugly place. So that's where we got to get guys and girls immediate help, be it the, the steps I talked about earlier, the Stelly gangland, whatever it is, um, bridge that portion. And once they're in the midst of healing, uh, be it Merck, hormone therapy, whatever we're utilizing, then they get to a calm enough place where we can start focusing on regulating that gut microbiome, getting breath work done. And breath work is another thing that people hear the term breath work and immediately think woo-woo. We use fucking breath work when we're shooting, when we're driving, <laughs> but you think it's cool when you're on the range, but the second somebody says, hey, you can regulate your emotions or help keep yourself calm when you're stressed out through breath work anywhere else. You're like, fuck, no, yeah. yeah. It's pretty silly, antiquated thinking. 
Yeah, it is. <clears throat> it's funny because like you're talking about some of these things, right? And I've definitely thought gut biome, woo-woo, breathing. Breathing over the past couple of years, I've I've learned a little bit. Like I haven't like like actively thought about it, but I've definitely used it like, okay, I'm gonna it's gonna take five seconds. We're gonna just calm back down, like bring it back down to planet Earth and not get not get pissed off. So when it comes to the healing stuff, right? You mentioned, you know, being in the midst of like all the chaos and stuff that, you know, you've kind of got this phased approach. It sounds like how long, and this is definitely a loaded, obviously case by case basis, but I think it's worth noting how long does it typically take for somebody to get to a point where they're able to regulate their emotions and look at it. Right. you had mentioned at the beginning that you had, it took you about, I think you said 10 days to have a feeling, put a thought to it, put a thought to it, a word to it, and then action, right? How long are you seeing for people to kind of take similar actions and feel more attuned to their emotion? That's a great question. And you're right. It's likely going to be a case, case by case basis. Um, part of the reason that we wanted to have tools at our disposal, um, and I keep using this term like the Stelly ganglion or, or ketamine therapy or a number of other tools we might utilize is because the time period that somebody would commit to and start the process of signing up for something like hormone therapy to receiving the, the protocol, because so if, if I was helping you today when you decide to commit to hormone therapy, I could be there with you in your office. We could bring up the website, fill out all the paperwork, get it submitted. It's going to be about a month before you get your protocol and, and all the everything that comes along with that protocol because we have to go get a blood test done. Blood test has to be sent out and analyzed, get the results back. Doc looks them over, comes up with the treatment protocol. You order everything or we order everything, get it, get it shipped in. Obviously, shipping issues right now is another one. Um, so that delay can be upwards of a month before you're just starting everything. Okay. Um, with testosterone, you generally don't really feel the full benefits for four to six weeks. Um, I attribute the, the, the quick bounce back that I had cognitively to the, the vitamins and supplements that I was taking. Um, but I will say that the testosterone has for me it's felt almost as though it's a prophylactic to those depressive waves that were coming in. Um, there's something called pregnenolone, which is a neural hormone that most people with any level of trauma are almost unrecognizably low in. Um, and that's something that people can kind of get ahead of the game. I've, I've talked to a lot of guys that are still active at my old agency and other agencies and suggested, Hey, if, if you're having, if you're irritable, short, you know, if you're having some of these presenting with some of these problems, you can start with this pregnenolone and it'll just help you calm down. It's a natural substance that you already have in your body. You're not um, over committing to it to where you're going to have excess amounts. Um, so that's one step that they can take. Uh, but yeah, so you're looking at about a two month window. Within that two month window, we can take these steps, whether it's the Stelly ganglion block, which is immediate relief. Everybody that I've spoken to that's had it, uh, and obviously there are always caveats. I have heard of folks that have tried it and not felt the results, but the 
vast majority of people that I've heard of utilizing it, it's a, it's a nerve block shot in your neck, ultimately. Um, the second that it, it goes in, they just feel immediate relief. Um, so utilizing tools like that, ketamine therapy, which is another one that there's some evidence to suggest that it does encourage neuroplasticity, um, but the long-term benefits are kind of individual basis about whether they, they work to a benefit long-term. They certainly work in the short term. Okay. Um, so we can utilize any of those tools and, and we have a, a number of others that um, can be used to create a bridge to, to get to that really healthy place. Yeah, that's cool. That seems very quick, right? I mean, you're obviously so with a lot of these other tools, right? You're creating the, the physical balance, right? Like the between the neuroplasticity, right? The helping of the brain function, the gut biome, all of these things, right? Creating the actual physical effect. Are you coupling that at all with like a, like the mental aspect as well, like therapy and counseling, or are you dedicated solely to the, the physical? We are focused primarily on the, the physical. Okay. Um, I would never discourage somebody from talk therapy. I utilize a uh, talk therapist that I've had a long relationship with. The issues that we often run into, um, and, and again, um, everybody should utilize whatever course is helping them and that they believe in, um, however that's done. Um, the problem often that we see is it's hard for people coming from my former community and the military community to walk into a therapist who has never carried a weapon for a living and try to talk about a lot of the problems that, that they want to get off their chest. Um, it, it, they're not, the, the person that they're speaking to aren't necessarily going to understand what they're saying on an intimate level. Uh, just like this, it's the same problem with talking to our spouses about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where stuff like group therapy, where there's a number of other people with similar experiences can be really valuable. And I know that there's a number of different resources online for tools like that. Um, there are groups within most um, law enforcement agencies and first responder communities have uh, peer groups that will uh, help with stuff like that. I know the military has similar structures set up. So th there, there are those elements at work um, that can be utilized we're just not focused on, on that. Uh, sure. More of the physiological and neurological view. Okay. Okay. So if somebody's listening right now and they're like, this is what I need to get involved in. How do they find you? ASMfoundation.com. Um, we are on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. Our, our website is www.asmfoundation.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Alpine Water Buffalo. Uh, and, you know, whether it's just a question or whether somebody wants to reach out to uh, try to try to get sponsored for treatment, we're happy to help in any way that we possibly can. Um, we are pushing hard to try to raise donations. We have three people that we're sponsoring right now. Uh, but this, this stuff is expensive. So the more donations we can generate, and all of the money, all everything that we are collecting goes directly to sponsoring these first responders and veterans. Um, so they are tax deductible donations. 
they can be made through our ASM uh, website. There's a, a couple different options for that. Uh, the EIN number is, is attached to that. So um, yeah, reach out. Any, any questions that we can answer for, for anybody that's looking for answers, we're happy to do that. Okay. And you uh, mentioned uh, sponsoring folks. Is that, um, is there an application process that people need to go through in order to get your guys help? Yeah, they'll find everything on, on the website. Okay. Perfect. We'll, we can, again, we deal with everybody on a case by case basis, obviously. Um, what the, the process would go, they, they apply with us. If we accept them, talk to them. Uh, it seems like a case that we can handle. Um, then we'll get them started with the application process with Dr. Gordon's office, if that's the route we wanna take, or uh, one of the Merck facilities that we're utilizing. Uh, if they need addiction therapy help, we can usher them to, to one of those centers. Um, we're also pushing to kind of round this whole process out. We, we encourage um, one of the psychedelic options that are out there. There's, there's different retreats that are available um, that we think are wildly valuable to uh, kind of round out the, the whole process. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm fresh out of questions. Is there anything that we missed, glazed over that you feel uh, we still need to, to cover? Um, I don't, uh, there's, there's one topic that is always pretty near and dear to my heart. And I think that um, I like to touch on it just because I had such a prejudiced thought before I experienced it firsthand. And that goes to the suicide aspect. And I always thought of suicide as this very uh, narcissistic act. Uh, I can only speak about my own experience, uh, but when you're in that, that dark place, it was nothing like what I expected. It felt like I was no longer in control of my thoughts. Uh, the, the, the thoughts that were coming through my head were so convincing purely by telling me there's a really easy way not to feel like this anymore. You won't be a burden on your family anymore. Uh, the people that love you deserve to not have to deal with, with this anymore. Um, and those thoughts don't go away. It's days and days and weeks of dealing with that constantly, no matter how you try to distract yourself. Um, I don't know why some of us get through it and some of us don't, but I don't want people to continue having this thought that they could have done something to help or this person was so selfish to, to deliberately harm themselves in that manner. It is the most God awful place that I have ever experienced in my life. And I would just ask people to take into consideration the amount of pain that somebody has to be in to actually do that to themselves and then reconsider how selfish you actually think. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. The suicide thing comes up every, every now and then talking with people, you know, and you know, my mind is never taking me down that route. Right. But I've definitely had my own types of dark days and 
I think that when people get to those points, you have to look at them and you can't ask them like, what's wrong with you. You kind of just have to like sit with it and accept the fact that they're hurting and that's okay. Absolutely. Well, and I think uh, that the, it, I hesitate to utilize the term, the voice in my head. Yeah. Makes you sound it more. Like I was hearing an outside voice. It was my own voice that it, it, the only way I can describe it is that I felt like I was possessed and something else was in charge of my thoughts and the messages coming through my head. And that's a sentiment that's been echoed to me many, many times from a multitude of different people that I felt like something else was in control yeah. of my brain. Well, I um, echo that again for you. Yeah, I've had that same experience. Sure. Um, the only thing that got me through was this little whisper of what I recognize as my more rational mind saying, but if we do survive, we can help other guys and girls survive this too. And that's why I want to change the approach that we take to so much of this, because we're not going to solve it through antidepressants and just patching the, the bleed. We need to stop the bleed. And that comes from looking at causation and legitimate means of healing. Um, and I think everything from our addiction treatment facilities to the way we approach overall mental health needs to shift from let's utilize chemicals and pharmaceuticals to, to numb the, the underlying issue and, and patch it temporarily to let's look at what the trigger is. Like what's I don't know a single addict that's happy being addicted to whatever substance they're addicted to. Yeah. They're self-medicating. So what's causing that need to self-medicate? Let's start looking at what those injuries are because I think more often than not, they're going to be physiological, whether that's resulted in neurological inflammation or uh, detriment on some level. We can, we can start focusing on ways to treat that stuff and get people to a better place. Um, I'm tired of getting calls of, and I don't, I don't mean that in a resentful way. I mean, I am emotionally exhausted from hearing about another person that I know has taken their life or uh, somebody is, that, that I'm close with is destroyed from somebody they were close with taking their life. Um, we can solve this problem or, or a, a, a big part of this problem. Yeah. Uh, through taking more of a holistic approach and looking at, at more viable options at legitimate here. Yeah. Yep. I agree. You know, going back to the addiction thing, I think ideally long-term we would like to, to keep helping push through this legislature that is killing the stigma of some of the psychedelic options that are available for legitimate healing. Yeah. Um, it is a very antiquated matter of thinking. When I look back and I think I was fully permitted to go home at the end of a shift and drink as much as I wanted, as long as nobody could smell it the next day and I wasn't presenting that I had drank the night before, um, all good. Even though it was affecting me cognitively, it was increasing my anxiety, it was making me slower to react in every area. Um, and whether they could smell it or not, there's probably some alcohol still on board affecting my decision-making. Sure. I think if 
law enforcement and the first responder and military community were allowed to utilize THC to in, in any way they want, but ultimately when they get off shift, those cannabinoids are not gonna be active the next day when they call on duty in a manner that's affecting how they react. It's not creating the same level of cognitive decline and impairment. It's not impairing or, or creating more anxiety like it, it, the alcohol did. Um, and it's, it's a plant-based medicine. Uh, it's pathetic to me, and, and I, I say that in the nicest way, that psilocybin and cannabis are both schedule one narcotics, which means the FDA does not recognize any level of medicinal purposes for their utilization, but methamphetamine and heroin are schedule two. Wrap your head around that for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can. It's a, it's a political game and I don't know why we're still playing it, but it's, it's pretty sad. There are a lot of healing benefits, obviously from uh, CBD alone that could be utilized uh, to decrease inflammation on a number of different issues. Um, you know, but it goes back to that antiquated method of thinking that we were talking about earlier with there are no physical fitness standards for law enforcement nationwide. Why? One reason is because they know they wouldn't be able to hire anybody if there were, or they would have fewer candidates. And it's already hard, hard enough to hire people the way that it is. Yeah. If, if I was in charge, if I was going to remedy this issue, I would double or triple the salaries of cops, get people who are more qualified and readily willing to, to do the job, meet the physical fitness standards, um, implement more resources for healthier diets. Um, there's a lot that I would do, but that's where I'd start and, and allow them to utilize THC. Um, I mean, I've, I've gone a little further than some other former law enforcement officers. I, I'm all for the complete decriminalization of all drugs. I don't see why the government should be telling anybody what they can and cannot put into their body. Um, I understand the ramifications of that. Uh, I've had great discussions with a number of different uh, cops about this. There's a, there's a really good argument with not allowing methamphetamine um, to be legal because of all the sex crimes that tend to stem from methamphetamine abuse. Uh, I can get behind that argument, but at the same time, I think we need to be punishing them independently. And right now, our criminal justice system is so backwards in how they Somebody who does a, a, somebody who embezzles some money from a business will get 10 to 15 years minimum, but somebody who videotapes, some old, dirty old man that videotapes himself having sex with his granddaughter will get four or six years. It makes no sense. Yeah. Only things backwards. So that's off topic. <laughs> that's okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you. That was great.
Pete, man, once again, thank you for taking the time to uh, share your story, what you guys are working on. Um, I hope everybody listening, I feel, I, I hope you all took some good information away. I will link uh, ASM's website in the episode description, as well as Pete's uh, Instagram uh, information as well. So if you need to reach out, feel free to do so. But otherwise, I hope you all have a great day, and we'll catch you next time.